Over the past couple of years, there's been a tremendous amount of attention paid to the needs and lives of renters, maybe more than ever before. That's evidenced by $46 billion of emergency rental assistance, by local, state, and federal eviction moratoriums, and by a lot of direct support from property owners and managers. Through this, we also saw a focus on landlord-tenant relations. Eviction moratoriums were part of that, but so too was talk in some cities of rent strikes. This really gets to the core of what obligations landlords and tenants have to each other, and how this relationship is captured and expressed in housing law. It's a nuanced story that's different all over the country and that continues to evolve. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the podcast, we're going to look into some of the history of landlord-tenant relations, tenants' rights, and housing law, and discuss how these issues have been playing out recently. We're fortunate to be joined by Seamus Roller, the executive director of the National Housing Law Project. Seamus is probably one of the best people to help us look into the story today. He has a long history in working on these issues. Before joining NHLP, he was the executive director of Housing California, uh, where he worked on housing and homelessness. He helped start the Residents United Network, which organizes residents in affordable developments. And prior to that, he was the executive director of the Sacramento Housing Alliance, a regional housing and homelessness advocacy organization. So Seamus, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Housing in the U.S. has evolved a lot over time, with maybe some of the biggest changes in the last 100 years or even in the last 50. It feels like we're in another important moment of change now especially for renters uh, and in housing law. So before we look at what's going on today, though, can you help us get some grounding in that history? Happy to. Uh, you know, I think as we look back, we find ourselves in this moment in which, you know, things are very dynamic around landlord-tenant law, around how we're thinking about evictions and what it means to rent in general. And so I think within uh it helps to think about the history of this, which is that property law and how we manage leases is some of the oldest law on the books that it's evolved from English common law. But in practice, what we have around when an eviction happens, much of that law was a, a pretty big step up from what happened previously, which was that the, the landowner or the Lord would you know, bring in his henchmen to kick you off the property with physical force. And so we created a set of ways in which courts intervened and provided ways in which landlords could evict tenants and to move them out. But that law hasn't evolved as much as certainly I would like. Uh, we find ourselves with, you know, a process that really lacks a lot of due process in many states, um, which doesn't really look like a courtroom at all, uh, as you might imagine it. You know, there's not a lot of cross-examination going on, not a lot of presentation of evidence, um, and many times the evictions themselves last only seconds in time um, in, in which the courts are processing them at this rapid speed. And so we've, uh, you know, I think we have this moment in the midst of, of the crisis around COVID in which we can see how evictions create all of these ripple effects of negative health outcomes and, and negative economic outcomes for the people involved, and that we might want to rethink how we envision that process and how we might try to address some of the underlying issues that people who are facing evictions have going on in their lives. Now, and it's certainly a you know, fascinating time for that. And you know, as part of that that rethinking that that you're talking about, you mentioned there are a lot of differences and you know differences in in rights uh, across the states and 
and uh, maybe in other ways. Can, can we break that down a little bit? Yeah, so I think maybe two examples might be a, a great way to think about this. Uh, you know, there was just a federal court case uh, in Mississippi, and the federal judge said that part of Mississippi's eviction law was unconstitutional because what it did in practice was uh, it allowed the landlord, as soon as the eviction was finalized, to take all of the property of the tenant that was currently at that property. So the woman whose case was the one that went up um, in Mississippi, she had been 16 days late in paying her rent. And uh, the sheriff showed up at her door with the property management uh, company. And uh, she was like trying to gather up the last of her belongings, the laptop that she was using to do her job, her family photos, and they forced her to put all that property down and to leave the premises. And then the owner of the property just threw out all the most of her belongings and sold whatever they could that was left, right? That's like what you might find in, in a place like Mississippi. Arkansas, for instance, has a criminal statute which criminalizes the non-payment of rent. Um and then you have some place like Oregon, and Oregon's done some of the most cutting-edge things on this. Uh, there's just cause in Oregon, which means that at the end of your lease term, you can't just kick out a tenant for no reason. Um, you know, they have some a rent cap and how, how much rents can go up over time and have thought through how the eviction process functions. But there's so many different pieces of this. It's like how much notice do you get before a lawsuit is filed? What kind of defenses might you have to an eviction? And how might all the different aspects of that be handled in the court system? And those? so there is a uniform landlord-tenant law that's, that's promulgated. And so there's a number of states that use some version of the uniform landlord-tenant law. Uh, and so there are definite similarities in how they function, but the details can really matter. Already, you've taught us a lot and given us a perspective on a number of things involved and, and how much of a threat this can feel to people in this situation. And as the pandemic came on and as there is the concern for how it's going to affect renters, how do you even start at that point to respond? It's easy to get sucked into the details of this, but sometimes I find it's really helpful to pull back and be like, well, what, when we think about what we want a renter's life to be like, what do we want for that, right? And how do we want to balance the sort of sets of, you know, responsibilities and rights that that both a landlord have and a tenant have and so for me i think you know we 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 encourage home ownership and there's lots of good reasons to do that but one of the reasons we encourage home ownership is we recognize that being a renter is a situation that puts yourself is one of precarity in which you have very little control over the future stability of your housing what it costs and the idea that I want to put out there is that that's not inherent in being a renter. It's it's how we've designed the policy around that, that those are very conscious decisions. Maybe we didn't make them for that reason, but those are policy decisions that have been made by governments around how we think about what it means to be a renter versus what it means to be a homeowner and how we sort of imagine that to be. And that there's lots of places in other countries in which being a renter is is one that's not not so full of sort of of worry and uncertainty in which being a renter is you know can be a perfectly stable thing to do and one thing that you choose and i think given the way that our economy is evolving 
that we also need being a renter to be a more stable and an e- a stable uh, situation to find oneself because there's real downsides of a homeownership, right? Real, especially if you're somebody who needs to move on a regular basis or if, you know, or if you live in one of those places in which you're just never going to become a homeowner because housing costs are so high. And so re-envisioning that, I think, is is not just good for sort of individual sort of theoretical renters out there, but good for all of us and good for the economy as a whole. That is uh, just a great perspective on kind of rethinking what it means to be a renter. But I imagine as you think about that, that it's it affects more than just the renter's life. How does it affect the community? One of the things that we're dealing with in this country, right, is just the huge inflation of housing costs overall, right? So what it takes to rent is is has gone up significantly over the last couple of years, part of that driven by dynamics of the pandemic. And so, you know, we need to address that. But, you know, cities are dynamic places. And making sure that people can move into them. So part of that is about affordability, right? It's it's important that our that our the places that are booming economically remain affordable as well. And that involves, you know, sort of land use and that involves investment from the federal government. But I think what gets often gets overlooked is sort of like what is it what are the sort of legal frameworks around how to how to make people's lives stable. And so, you know, I think about um, you know, one of my one of my son's friends, uh, both the parents are are immigrants, and uh, you know, and they've sort of figured out how to survive um, in San Francisco. And you know, they've got uh, the mother-in-law lives with them, and they have a friend that lives with them, and they have no trouble making the rent every month. But what they have is they have somebody who lives downstairs from them, who is a real difficult neighbor that they have that complains about if the kid runs in the hallway or, you know, anything happens. And so they're always sort of struggling with this sense of precarity that's forced upon them, this idea that this might fall apart at any moment, even though they've managed to figure out the affordability. It's sort of like the legal structures and feeling like you're safe in this place that you're renting. That really determines how people feel about the place that they're in. And I think that, you know, we are moving more and more towards, uh, a situation which many people are renting, right? The, they'll soon probably be the majority of people across the country. And that doesn't just need to be a stopover on the way to home ownership. That's not what it's going to be for many people going into the future unless we really change the housing market overall. So I think finding out a way in which we, we make that experience work both for tenants and for landlords moving into the future is, is part of the reason why landlord-tenant law needs to be uh, you know, needs to be reformed, why we need to have longer term rental assistance programs, uh, why we need to have eviction courts improve overall, and how we just need to reimagine and and give more dignity to the to the act of being a renter. One thing that that seems to have uh, become more prominent in, in recent years, too, you know, you talk about uh, sort of uh, housing law and you know, landlord tenant law being sort of a baseline, right? But I think you, you start to see uh, you know, more and more uh, property managers, uh, property owners going above and beyond, you know, just what the law requires. Uh, what are you seeing in that space? Are there any sort of new innovations in, in uh, property management practice and, and uh, treatment of, of renters? You've seen many uh, mission-oriented owners. So you see this in the, in the affordable uh, development space, right? Sort of, they really 
took this to heart during the pandemic and we're like, all right, what do, what do we need to do to make sure that we're not evicting our tenants, recognizing that that wasn't, you know, that was a bad outcome and a bad look in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and you see some real innovations there. Uh, but, you, you know, wind companies is one of those that started this before, before the pandemic in which they thought, is there a way in which we can rethink how we're handling this? And some of the stuff that they've done is really interesting and have dramatically reduced the number of evictions. And they're a big for-profit that owns a bunch of project-based Section 8 and other affordable properties across the country. And so they've really stepped in and thought about, all right, is there ways in which we can interact with our tenants? Um, they have thought about the underlying landlord-tenant law and how to use that instead to kick people out, but to think about how to how to turn it in a way that helps preserve tenancy. So they've, you know, they reach out to tenants and try to connect them with rental assistance programs. They negotiate pay, uh, repayment plans in a very proactive way. Even when they do file, they, I was reading about this the other day, they, I'm going to maybe get the details a little bit wrong, but you can set a court date and the earliest you can set it, I think is eight days after you give a notice. What they started to do is instead of setting it to eight days, they set it at the maximum amount, which I think is something like 31 days. So then the tenant is getting noticed that they're a part of a process, but they give themselves as much time as they can to try to make contact with that tenant and work out a situation which allows that tenant to stay, allows that tenant to access rental assistance. And they sort of, one of the things they found, I think, is just it's made them more profitable, not less, that the process of evicting people is very expensive. It comes with a lot of ancillary costs and that by keeping people housed has been has worked out very well for them, though it's had some costs in just retooling and retraining their property management team. But I think that they've really shown and sort of laid a pathway for other organizations to think about how to how to do that. And one of the things that I run into sometimes in the, in the affordable with affordable developers is that they they sometimes think oh I've got this massive wait list and they get in this idea I, th I think of it as the the sort of deserving poor person right that that they like providing housing to people who you know feel gratitude about that all the time and are you know sort of good citizens right but part of the thing about affordable housing infrastructure is like it's about housing the people who are the most in need and those people may be you know really nice people, they may be difficult people, right? But that we have some commitment, especially within affordable housing, to make sure that we keep stable those people who are the most vulnerable overall. And those those people, you know, may they may be they may be easy people, they may be difficult people, but part of it for society is that we have to make sure to to house all of those people. So let's take on that point, what the tenant experience is sort of when things go right versus uh, when things go uh, when things go wrong or or at least less right. Yeah. Well, I, one of my things about thinking about stability over the long term, right, is that in most states in the country, a landlord can just, once you're a term lease, right, you often sign, sign a one-year lease at the beginning. Once that's up, you converts to a month-to-month. To -month. And your landlord can usually kick you out with a no-cause eviction in 30 days for no reason whatsoever, even though you sort of haven't violated the lease, you, uh, you've been paying your rent on time, and you, uh, you know, they, they just can, can do that for, even though they plan to rent it into the future. And so 
that I think is one of those dynamics where you end up, you're just like, as soon as I get through my one year, anytime within 30 days, the landlord can kick me out. And that dynamic, I think, just is is one of those things that's untenable going into the future. Um, but in practice, if you think about this, right, we're, we're a network of legal aid attorneys and housing organizers and activists across the country. That's what NHLP does, right? And so about for most tenants, entering the eviction court means they're unrepresented. Only guess about 3% of tenants are represented around evictions. That number is fortunately going up. Um, about 81% of landlords are. They're walking into a very complex sort of legal framework around evictions. Um, and most tenants are actually moving out before they end up in a court. They just, you know, their landlord sends them notice, they move out. There's lots of illegal evictions. There's lots of situations in which landlords harass people and then they move out. So it's a really, you know, so it's a situation with a deep, power imbalance most of the time between tenants and landlords. I'm curious, in those cases where it, it doesn't follow the uh, the official process for an eviction, how do you see that? What What's the evidence that you look at or what demonstrates that? There's not, I mean, one, the data around evictions as a whole is very weak, right? We don't have court systems across the country. Most of them don't keep very good records around this. Uh, the data that we have from Eviction Lab, they've done gone to sort of heroic efforts to understand what's happening. But most of their data is it's you know it's a handful of states, thirty plus cities around the country, and their most of their data is based on eviction filings. So we don't know one like how many people get evicted, you know, through extrajudicial means. We don't even have a great sense of how many people are actually evicted over how many eviction filings there are. So, you know, I think understanding what's happening is a is a real data challenge first. But, uh, you know, in our surveys of legal aid attorneys, lots of them are encountering uh, are encountering sort of, you know, non-judicial evictions. And I think if you think back upon, you know, maybe your earlier days, right? It's like when I was renting, you know, it's like if the landlord was like, hey, like, we want you out for whatever that reason might have been, my idea was not, oh, I'm going to hang around until there's a sheriff that shows up at my door. Right. You know, it was just like, all right, landlord wants me gone. I guess I need to find a new place to live. Yeah. Just that notice would be terrifying, I think. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, totally terrifying. Right. I think it would be terrifying now when I'm a lawyer, you know. Like, <laughs> and so I think that that's, that's how oftentimes how things are, are, are happening. Um, and so what we see in sort of like in the actual court filings is something, you know, it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg in many ways around what's actually happening in practice. And so because we're lawyers, right, in legal aid, we oftentimes see the worst of the behaviors too. So we see sexual harassment by landlords and we see, you know, constant harassment and racial harassment. You know, we see landlords who shut off the utilities, they'll shut off water, they'll shut off power to the property to try to get somebody to move out. Um, we'll see, you know, we saw lots of, you know, eviction notices from landlords during the pandemic, even when there was an eviction moratorium, just sort of playing the numbers in the hopes that the tenant might move out, even though they didn't have to. Um, you know, lots of things like that. You know, that being said, I want to point out that I think the reason we saw many fewer evictions than maybe we had thought at the beginning of the pandemic was that many, many landlords worked with their tenants and, you know, were lenient, forgave rent, 
did repayment plans, did other things to make sure that people stayed stable overall. Um, you know, just given a bad name by that percentage of predatory landlords that's, uh, you know, that's out there. As you're being a lawyer and, and you talk through kind of the, these issues and, and the fact that in, in the formal procedures, there's, uh, um, there's often legal aid for the landlord um, sometimes and often not for, for, the, uh, for the tenant. But when it does happen that there's lawyers on both sides, how often does that happen and, and what, what is the kind of interactions what you see is a real growth of cities that are passing uh, right to counsel and a few states that are passing right to counsel um, laws. So you're seeing a real jump in the number of tenants in some places that are represented by attorneys. Uh, one of the things that is kind of surprising, actually, is that landlords often really like it when tenants are represented by an attorney because it's a pretty personal relationship sometimes between the landlord and the tenant, right? And it can be a very adversarial one. And that having somebody there to kind of negotiate with and also to tell the tenant, hey, actually, you do need to do this thing that you haven't been doing or like, you know, you you have a car up on blocks, you know, or you're like, you know, you're playing loud music at midnight and you can't do that because this is what the local ordinance says, right? Like, you know, somebody to kind of negotiate some of those difficult dynamics can be very helpful, especially to a good landlord. Judges tend to like it when tenants are represented as well because of that same thing. It makes the court system flow more smoothly and makes that work. Uh, so there's obviously, you know, it's like a, an attorney understands what the defenses are. So, you know, you, a landlord has to provide a habitable a place for the person to live in, right, as part of the lease. And so it may be that, the, you know, you you didn't have to pay rent because the place wasn't actually habitable, or there may be other defenses you have around non-payment or defenses that you have around the other lease violations that the, that the landlord says happened. And so that that's, you see court cases improve. The other thing that is is maybe less intuitive is that that the attorneys often help negotiate better alternative resolutions around this. So it may be, yeah, you can't pay the rent and you need to move out, but what we're gonna negotiate is you're gonna get three extra weeks to do that. The tenant's gonna get to do it on a timeline that's helpful to them. Maybe they're not gonna get an eviction record as part of the process. You know, the sort of other kinds of negotiated settlements, the, having an attorney is very helpful around those sorts of things as well. And, and those things make a big difference for the uh, tenant's ability to rent another apartment, right? And and to, to move on. Yeah. Are you moving out tomorrow or can you kind of manage another week to figure out if you can rent another place or to line up to move in with friends or things like that, right? That's that, that one of the reasons to think about public policy intervention into evictions is that it's a it's this sort of crux moment for people, right? It's like if you're able to rent another apartment and become stable or access rental assistance or get, you know, some sort of other assistance around housing, get into affordable housing if you couldn't afford, right? Then you can have good outcomes. But if you get evicted and that results in homelessness or it results in overcrowding or you're living in your car for a couple of weeks with your kids, it it's really associated with lots of bad public outcomes, right? So if we can, you know, kind of, you may still get 
the eviction process may still start, but if we can keep you in that moment of crisis from bad things happening to you, that's really good for society as a whole. It's this moment in which we can sort of change change the path that people are on um, and avoid avoid bad outcomes that are ultimately like either are, are both sort of like moral hazards for all of us, but also just plain expensive, right? Like the things that happen to families, to kids are expensive through the education system, through special education, through, you know, domestic violence shelters, through health, you know, they have all these ripple effects down the line, which are uh, just, you know, down, downright expensive for all of us. Early on in our discussion, you know, you painted a, a very dark view of what eviction courts are like, that process but it seems like in the last couple of years, right, through the pandemic, there have been some innovations there, and and uh, you know, to the point you just made, trying to uh, sort of address the, some of those challenges, you know, whether or not somebody is is represented. Uh, what are some of those those emerging trends you've seen in, in eviction courts, and and how widespread are they? There's been a big growth in eviction diversion programs during the pandemic, in particular. It's been championed uh, by the White House, so. You know, sort of the best one I think in the country probably is the one in Philadelphia, which the you know the court system runs an eviction diversion program in which there's mediation between the uh, between the landlord and the tenant to try to find a resolution. Um, in Philly, it's it's required sort of I believe pre-filing. So before you file an eviction, you have to go through the diversion program. And there's rental assistance attached to it. So if money is just the only barrier that they can provide some money to get the tenant back uh, to pay for the back arrears that they owe in that situation and to kind of find a resolution that works. And then they also pair that in Philadelphia with uh, with an attorney. So you don't necessarily have an attorney during the mediation process, but if you know things don't get if there's not a resolution, then it can can move through there. So there are lots of diversions. Some programs are less good. You know, some of them are really designed around reducing court dockets, and so they don't produce as good outcomes as the as the Philadelphia program does. But you have um, the National Center for State Courts, which uh, is the sort of like trade association for state court systems, is doing really good work around this and encouraging court systems to rethink how they handle eviction cases and produce better outcomes. I mean, one of the challenges is that in many places. Eviction courts are the are the sort of initial place that you start, right? So it's the judges that are there are in the very beginning of their careers as judges. They have limited experience overall. And the people that they have to train them in practice are really oftentimes the repeat players who are in the systems, which are the, you know, the landlords eviction attorneys. So they're the ones start teaching the judges how the how the system is supposed to work. And you know, some of the surveys that you've seen that, we, that I've read across the country, it's just that uh, even when you have a uniform landlord-tenant law across the state, if you look at the outcomes and the way those court systems function in practice, they often produce very different results depending upon which court uh, you're in. And so there's real inconsistency overall in eviction courts and for fairly limited uh in how they actually obey federal and state laws overall, that sometimes they just drive towards a, the result that they want overall. And so I think, you know, there's real need for a change within those court systems. Um, my favorite example is, you know, in in New Orleans, uh, you know, they have uh, magistrates of the peace, right? So you may be, your eviction 
court hearing might be uh, heard by someone who's not even a lawyer in their living room. So you know the dynamics in some place like that kind of are 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 pretty wild sometimes. It's amazing to hear things like this where things can happen in a living room and the you know just I think intricacies of the system where just to know that the, these are you know generally people earlier in their career than in you know other judges and things like that 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 all play into this which are you know things that we, that we you know can't know from a distance. As you talk about kind of bringing consistencies, there's a, there's examples. Are there other things to, to bring consistency? Judges who have an eviction docket, there's usually so many cases in front of them. And so I think diversion is, it is really important to lower the number of cases that are going through, right? To settle them out before they get before a judge. Partially because you need judges to have more time and to be more thoughtful about the cases that they have in front of them, right? And the cases that come before them need to be ones in which there's a difficult legal case to be sort of figured out, right? Everything else should be figured out before then. They should be settling out. They should be getting resolved if we can resolve them so that, you know, part of it is there's huge pressure on these judges. If you have like 400 cases in front of you in a given day, how do you give much thought to in the individual case that is in front of you? Because most of these are, you know, practice or just default, right? So the tenant doesn't show up. They don't think they have a case. So they don't even appear in the courtroom. And, and it's a default judgment in that case. And it just moves forward. But, you know, there is real pressure for judges. And if we can pull that back a little bit and allow, allow there to be a process which is more designed about, you know, understanding what the truth is in any given situation, we'll have better outcomes. Do you think, uh, you know, with, with some of the innovations during the pandemic in, in eviction courts, do you think those, some of those are going to stick? I think they will stick, many of them, but it also will require effort. By some of the pioneering judges that have been doing this work, it's going to require effort by advocates across the country and legal aid attorneys to kind of keep these things at the forefront. Uh, you know, I think that there's already some sort of, in the public imagination, some kind of, you know, the you know, they've heard a lot about evictions. And so it's hard to keep in the forefront of the mind and sort of realize that this there is this moment for change and to make real progress around this thing. And so I think some of it will stick, but my hope is that we've learned enough to really reform the system overall. Yeah. And I think um, this is great information on the effects of tenants and the eviction process, but it's also an always evolving housing market and rents have been going up so much lately and incomes uh, probably slow to follow, especially for some. As you look at the broader housing market from your perspective, as we get past this, hopefully there'll be some improvements, but with dwindling affordability, does that give you concern that the issue grows and, and is a bigger magnitude? Definitely. Um, it's one thing to have a bad landlord if you can go across the street and rent somewhere else, right? If you have a bad landlord and there's nowhere else for you to go, then you find yourself in a terrible situation. And so, you know, affordability obviously plays into this, right? And having other choices is really, really important. You know, the example I gave of my son's friend you know, they're in they're, you know, in the Bay Area where there's so few choices, right? They've they figured out this place that works for them, but sort of like there's not a good other choice for them because of how the housing market is working right now in California and in the Bay Area. 
Uh, and so I think that these things do really matter, right? They're an inter interconnected set of issues. I often think about it, and this is kind of a little abstract, but like what we want for people is we want autonomy, right? We want them to feel like they have some control over their lives and to have real control over their lives. And that the the rights of the in the court system matter, but so do so does being able to afford it, right? And having choices is, is another form of autonomy. And that the housing market and just the craziness that it's going through right now is, is stripping people of choices and, and options and certainly stripping them of good choices around how to think about the housing that they have. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously we need more investment overall as a country into affordable housing. That needs to be a part of this. Um, but this is also driven by sort of historically racist zoning and uh, and other kind of restrictions on where people live um, that have you know built up over a hundred years or so to create the problem that we find ourselves in right now so th those are great points about affordability in the market and uh, and offering choice uh, and and that um, takes away some you know uncertainty and some and some stress for for tenants um, for those that that do get evicted, that goes onto their record, and uh, that can have a lasting impact. Uh, can, can you speak to that? Whenever a landlord files an eviction, even just the filing often occur, uh, will appear on the record. And so most landlords now use some form of tenant screening. So there are big you know, national tenant screening companies, and sometimes there are local ones. And so it's changed a little bit, in fact, quite a bit over the last, you know, 10 years to 20 years. You know, it used to be that a landlord would contract with some background check company and the background check company would send over all the records and, you know, landlord had to sort of sift through it all. But now a lot of this stuff is being kind of automated in one way or another. So, you know, they'll, the landlord will send uh, the tenant screening company and they'll say, well, I only want, you know, tenants that don't have any criminal record and don't have any eviction record. And so that's actually sometimes the tenant screening company that's going through. And so they're just filtering out anybody willy nilly who might've been had an eviction filing or who've had uh, any kind of criminal record, sometimes even just an arrest are getting screened out of the process. So how tenant screening happens in practice has become a much bigger deal. And so for some tenants, what that means is any small black mark on their record might mean that they're excluded from a huge swath of the housing market, especially with some of the big corporate landlords moving towards a really automated process around this. Um, and so what you see, too, is that many tenants will move out of a property as soon as a landlord wants because they're really afraid of an eviction record, that many landlords won't rent to them even if they've just been filed for in an eviction. Even if they won the eviction case against the landlord, even if the landlord withdraws it, they know that that filing is still going to be on their record and is going to limit their choices in housing into the future. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is uh, has been doing some uh, administrative work around this issue, and uh, we've done we have a big lawsuit going on around this in Connecticut right now. But you know the this idea that somehow even if a landlord just files for eviction that that can limit your housing choices that is something that's got to change into the future as well, um, because that what you see is sort of like that 
you know, especially African-American women are much more likely to get an eviction record, right? That this plays out along issues of, of race and of issues of gender. Um, you know, people who are victims of domestic violence are much more likely to have received an eviction record, people with certain disabilities. So you have sort of the ways in which the discrimination within the housing market gets sort of gets multiplied by the other systems that exist within it. Um, and so eviction records are one of those ways. So we've thought about other things too. You know, I think about application fees being one of these ways in which eviction records plays out even further. So if you have, uh, if you have an eviction record and you're applying to apartments that have application fees, you're just going to steer away from a lot of them because you don't want to waste money just throwing money into an application fee in an apartment you never, you know, you're never going to get. So what that tends to do then is even further magnify issues around segregation, and you see this play out um, in this sort of interlocking way. Um, I've always felt that, like application fees are one of those things that's ridiculous, right? You have to pay a fee as a prospective renter for a service that benefits the landlord. You know, I, I never really understood that one. So we've worked on a couple of states, uh, a couple of different policy things where people have thought about um, doing portable screening reports and the idea that you could buy a screening report and take it from property to property. And that way, you know, a, what's in the screening report and that that's accurate, and then you'd not pay multiple screening fees over and over again. Today, in, in most cases, right, landlord goes to the screening company. So do those same screening companies make themselves available to tenants, or is there are there other companies that the tenants would go to? Uh, most of them don't offer it, but I think Zillow is offering a portable screening report, and there's a couple of other companies that are starting to sort of pioneer this idea of portable screening reports. And so there's a couple of I think there are four states that have introduced legislation around this idea of either requiring or encouraging in some ways landlords to accept uh, portable screening reports in lieu of uh, in lieu of doing each report. You know, I, cer I certainly remember when I was uh, when I was renting in my 20s, there was one guy I was like, this guy is just like, you know, he's encouraging as many people as possible to come in because he's just using it as a way to make money, right? He's taking 40 bucks from every person who walks in the door. Like I, what, you know, I applied for an apartment and I went back and he still had the same apartment open like a week later. He's just raking in the fees. Like he probably already had a renter for it. He was just, you know, continuing to take the application fees. I always felt like it's just such a abusive consumer practice overall. James, you mentioned sort of that disparity between, uh, you know, tenants being represented by attorneys versus uh, landlords being represented. How, you know, what percent of tenants are, are represented uh, today? So the best data that we have um, comes from the National Civil Right to Counsel, and they estimate that 3% of tenants are represented in eviction court, while 81% of landlords are represented. That's an incredible gap. And so it, in trying to close that that gap? Are there even enough lawyers for tenants? Well, there are definitely, uh, I, you know, I think there are lots of people who are interested, young lawyers who are interested in going into this field. So, you know, I think that with more funding, that there are real ways to sort of increase the number of uh, tenants that are represented. Um, you see some, you know, some places, as I talked about, that are moving to, you know, some kind of right to counsel around around eviction cases, which is a, a, a big step. New York was the place that really started this out. Um, you know, San Francisco, St. Louis just uh, passed this a couple of days ago. 
And so, you know, I think that's really important, but we also really need the federal government, right? So uh, legal aid was really founded in the 60s as part of the war on poverty. It existed a little bit before, but that was the founding of the Legal Services Corporation and and the federal investment in this area. And, and legal aid attorneys were hugely influential in building out, you know, civil rights law as it was. And we need to kind of reinvest in that system overall. So both through the Legal Services Corporation, um, but there's also was recently a $20 million uh, pilot program at HUD funding eviction uh, defense. So they gave out 10 different awards across the country to kind of build up capacity of legal aid around evictions issues. And so, you know, so building on some of those practices, we can start to see this grow. And I think it really it dovetails importantly with eviction diversion programs. And so, you know, we don't, our, our goal is not, I think, to see it as like, oh, we've got every person going into eviction court who was going in before all of a sudden is magically represented by a lawyer. It's got to be in conjunction with the idea that we're keeping people out of that courtroom to begin with as well so that they're resolving their disputes beforehand. And I think it's got to be paired up with long-term rental assistance, right? Because there's, you know, some people just are going to hit bumps in that road. And if we have money to help them kind of overcome that moment in their lives and remain stably housed, that's a really important tool. So I think about it as, you know, as a couple of different stages to make the system work better, right? Which is a greater level of representation by attorneys, ongoing emergency rental assistance, improvement of the court systems and uh, and growth of eviction diversion overall, uh, and then a reform of the underlying landlord-tenant law. Those things together, I think, are going to produce much better outcomes for tenants, uh, but they're also going to produce better outcomes for landlords as well, right? Like that this that keeping people out of eviction court, keeping them stably housed is a good business model for landlords as well. And it's certainly better for all of us uh, as a part of the community. That is really well said. And uh, I think there's so many things that from a distance, you know, we just can't see. And, um, and, and there's consideration, but these are, you know, realities that happen in the day to day for, for many, many people, many tenants. And, and it's a reality of, of how landlords operate their business. And, uh, you know, learning a little bit about um, the lo- the long history and where the law is kind of antiquated, um, the, uh, the the disproportionate use you know use of lawyers, and and the the many different factors has just been really informative today. And uh, I want to thank you, Seamus, for for being here and and enlightening us on all this. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.